Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Friday, December 2nd. Welcome to December. It's that time of year. The year-end lists have arrived. The Spotify wrapped is all over social media. Craig's was basically just ABBA and Taylor Swift. Good for you. Not far off. (laughs) Uh, We're going to do a few episodes this month on the year in Hollywood. But today, we want to look at the year in streaming. Are you watching Wednesday on Netflix? That's the Addams Family spinoff with Jenny Ortega. It generated 341 million hours of viewing in its first week, which is great for Netflix. Puts it on par with the top shows of the year. Sneaky great, in my opinion. I don't think that show i wouldn't have guessed that show would be a huge hit Uh, but that's kind of the nature of the streaming wars these days there's no one accepted metric of success and there's not that much marketing for some of these shows so you never really know what's going to pop and you can kind of slice and dice the numbers however you want and these services definitely do shows that you think might be huge maybe aren't or they deliver a big audience but it's people who were already watching that service in the first place and thus are less valuable than those that sign up just to watch. That's what Julia Alexander analyzes. She's a writer for Puck, where I work, and a director of strategy at Parrot Analytics, which crunches the numbers in the streaming universe. We're going to look today at what shows worked and didn't work, or maybe were sneaky good or sneaky bad for the various streaming services this year. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. Okay, we are here with Julia Alexander. Julia, welcome. Thank you. Um, so you are in the weeds on the numbers from 2023. Sorry, 2022. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, and what worked, what didn't. There's lots of different metrics out there. That's sort of what's fun about the streaming era is that there is no one accepted number that everybody looks at, like in the old days with TV, where it was the overnights with Nielsen. You can slice and dice it any way you want, present any narrative you want. Netflix does it every week with their own data that they put out that uh, I guess we believe. We sh- you know, it's not really, you know, they say it's audited by Ernst & Young, but I've never seen those audit reports. Uh, but people do report it. We're going to talk about what worked, what maybe didn't work. And some of the big wins that these streamers had, because it's not necessarily what you think. Like Wednesday, I would have never guessed that Wednesday would be the most viewed new program of the year on Netflix. Would have never guessed that. I I just, that franchise seems old to me, The Addams Family. I know it's a very well-known thing, but I wouldn't think that 
teens and 20-year-olds would care about Wednesday Adams, and yet Jenny Ortega maybe brought them to it. Yeah, Wednesday, uh, you're also just not hanging out on Tumblr and TikTok. And I think uh, we right. we disregard Tumblr and TikTok. But <laughs> yeah, but I kind of saw it within the first few hours. It was very clearly picking up. But the thing about Wednesday, right, is that it's the best CW show the CW show never made. Like, like it really is, that is what that show is through and through. And those are the types of series that overperform on Netflix. It's how Netflix found its young audience very early on in its streaming career. Um, so there's no question that alongside, you know, Jenna Ortega, who's had a huge year starting with Scream 5 in January. Then you have X um, over from A24. Now you lead into this. She's had a massive year. She's very hip with all the young kids like Zendaya. Put all those things together and you put a Tim Burton show on that has like an aesthetic that really works. And that's a, that's a big audience. So it didn't surprise me. I think what the, the nice thing about Wednesday, it gives us a great opportunity to talk about the year that Netflix has had. If you look right. at Netflix's top 10 English speaking shows of all time, according to what they report in the first 28 days, five of them premiered uh, within, in 2022. So 50% of their top 10 shows as they report this year. The top three wow. shows. That is crazy considering if you ask anyone in Wall Street or in the general Hollywood area, you will get, you know, oh, this was a horrible year for Netflix because the stock is in the toilet. Right, exactly. And if you kind of look at the top three shows, which I think are inherently interesting, it's Stranger Things 4, Bridgerton Season 2, and then Wednesday. And here's what I think speaks volumes to this kind of conversation we're having about the anxiety of streaming and not understanding necessarily what works from a revenue perspective versus a subscriber growth perspective versus all these other options that we look at. If we look at those three shows, the Venn diagram of people who watch all those shows is one giant circle. So if you have a show like Stranger Things and Wednesday and Bridgerton, and it is appealing to the same subscriber base, and those are not high-risk churn subscribers. Those are power Netflix users who are on that app all the time. That's not going to necessarily result in, in huge subscriber growth, nor is it necessarily going to result in preventing high-risk customers from churning. So if you're Netflix, having these shows that are really watched is, is impressive. One, they bring attention to the platform. Two, they kind of create this adoration for the brand, like all these things that are kind of intangible assets are very, very important as Netflix figures out its next uh, steps of its franchise development cycle. But if you're looking at it from a numbers game, which is what Wall Street does, there's not a huge growth in subscribers. If anything, there's a lack of growth in subscribers. And it's because you're not targeting, you're not expanding your total addressable market. You're just kind of reiterating the same type of content over and over again. This is why so Netflix- So it's a, it's a hit, but it's not really moving the needle for Netflix. Yes. What are some shows on Netflix this year that did matter, that did benefit the company and the subscriber growth and the engagement and the churn level and maybe brought in some new viewers to Netflix? I think two great examples. One's a television show, one's a movie. Uh, Virgin River, which I believe was in its third or fourth season. Uh, I can't remember exactly which one it was, but it was Is returning. Is that the one that's like basically softcore porn? I mean, there's a lot of things on Netflix that are basically softcore form, but it's a romance type show, yes. Uh, and purple. But not the one. That's not the one where like everyone's naked. No, three, six, five days. Is, oh, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. So Virgin River is just a romance. Who's the target audience there? Well, the same audience that would be watching Purple Hearts. And Purple Hearts was a movie, Matt, you might remember, that came out around the same time as Gray Man. And so everyone was focused on this big $200 million Russo Brothers movie that Netflix wanted to do. And there was this small romance movie about a woman who falls in love with a Marine. Um, and this movie blew up on Netflix. It gained a lot of uh, viewership hours, which is a core component of this. And it also, the reason it's so important is that it expanded beyond Netflix. Netflix's core base. It looked, it targeted slightly older viewers. 
um, who are higher risk of churning and brought in new subscribers, someone like my mom, who's not necessarily going to tune into Netflix for Wednesday or Stranger Things or Bridgerton, but is really interested in this. You know, The Crown is another example of why that show is so important to Netflix. You know, beyond award shows, beyond talent, it really does expand an audience that may or may not be interested in having Netflix throughout the year. Well, because Netflix doesn't make shows like that anymore, or makes very few. That's a legacy show that they started making seven years ago, and it's still airing, and I tune in every time it's on. When we look at, my my team and I, when we look at the white space opportunity for a lot of these streaming services, and we talk about the shows that are really kind of big potential wins for them, the audience that is neglected over and over and over again is audiences over the age of 55. That's an audience that people aren't necessarily making shows for in the streaming space. They are on the broadcast space. But if we look at Nielsen's weekly ranking on the acquired titles list on those rankings, it's always like NCIS and Grey's Anatomy. And those types of shows are crucial for Netflix and other streamers because it appeals to an audience who is looking to cut cut the cord, but is trying to find an option that's going to give them the closest thing to cable that or to linear that they're going to have. You got to have that sweet, sweet Mark Harmon. You got to have him <laughs> in your in your home, on your streaming service. He is gold. No, I mean, what it basically means is that shows that are popular on television are also popular on streaming. I don't think that's a huge lift to get there, but they're the acquired shows. I mean, Netflix isn't making NCIS. That is a brand that has been developed over 25 years. And the fact that NCIS will pop up on Netflix, that's a huge draw for that audience. But let's talk about originals. Because I want to get I want to get to what moved the needle this year for outlets other than Netflix. You mentioned that you know something that appeals to older, more sophisticated audiences can be a driver. Let's talk about Disney Plus because there was a movement this year to get more adult-oriented stuff on Disney Plus, and they had some hits and misses. Andor did Andor actually succeed, or is it? the lowest rated Star Wars show that they put out and that is ultimately going to be deemed a failure. From a viewership perspective, so consumption alone, it is one of the lowest rated or low, we can see kind of lowest, even on the demand side, lowest demand out of all of the Star Wars originals that have come out on Disney+. Plus. But if we think about, you know, the people I talk to at different companies across the board who are in charge of franchise development, if we think about what Disney had to do with Mandalorian, the biggest thing that came out of Mando was Baby Yoda. They needed a, a kind of what we recall as faceless, a faceless green baby that could appeal to audiences globally and that people would tune in for. And it's kind of a basic action adventure in space type story with this really cute thing. So what that show needed to do was become the base model for Disney Plus, for Star Wars on Disney Plus. And in that way, it succeeded. When you go through all the different shows that Disney has, especially this year, you kind of look at Obi-Wan, you know, that kind of plays into the same nostalgia bait that a lot of Star Wars stuff does. It's based around the Skywalker saga. It's kind of the same old story over and over again. I think the most important shows that have come out of this year, even if they're not the biggest on Disney Plus across Star Wars and Marvel, are She-Hulk, Miss Marvel, and Andor. Those shows are increasingly important right now because if we look at where Disney Plus is and we look at where Disney is with its franchises, it's at a pivotal moment. It needs to kind of reach a new generation of subscribers that are younger. It needs to expand into prestige programming. It needs to continue generating interest for the film side because they are interloping those stories over and over again. And so you can only do so much with the Skywalkers, right? You can only do so much with like the Tony Stark and Steve Rogers arcs. Eventually you have to expand and find new audiences. So Miss Marvel, 
Marvel. She-Hulk appeal to female audiences for the most part. They appeal to kind of non-Marvel fans a little bit. Miss um, Marvel is very Scott Pilgrim-y. She-Hulk is kind of this irreverent uh, comedy. Then you have Andor, which is this not literally not made for Star Wars fans, Star Wars show that looks right. at this very gloomy aspect of kind of fascism in space. Uh, but... That show appealed to so many people who were not interested in what Disney was doing with Star Wars over the last five so years. So does the data say that? Like, I think that's true, and I and I talk about that with friends, but what does the data show on Andor? Did it bring in this audience, or are people that are not Star Wars fans talking about it? We see on our side that it is one of, uh, it's a show, out of all the Star Wars shows, it appeals to the oldest base. So the other ones tend to skew much more closer to millennial, maybe Gen Z. Also a term that comes up often is Xennials. It's a term advertisers love. It's like in between the Gen Z and millennials. Um, oh, that's Craig. Craig's a Xennial. <laughs> I finally have a name. Wow. <laughs> you do. I always say he's too old to be a Gen Z, but he's too young to be a millennial. <laughs> so Xennials are very important uh, for advertisers. Um, and so if you look at that base, they most of those Star Wars shows tend to skew younger. Andor, still within millennial, but closer to Gen X. It kind of skews a little bit more yeah, up than the other me. ones do. That's me. I, Andor is made for me. But I will say also, you know, in terms of what Disney Plus had for a good year, when we look at uh, Turning Red, right? And this, you could have a whole de debate about this. Should that movie have gone to theaters? That's a whole other conversation. But in terms of what that movie accomplished in terms of uh, adding a de adding value to Disney Plus at a time when families are looking for more things to watch, uh, that's a big win. I would say that Hocus Pocus 2 was a big win for Disney Plus uh, for what they're trying to do with that movie. Their biggest thing they have to figure out is how to focus less on Star Wars and Marvel, which sounds ironic, but you can't just build your global base off that. One, it's too expensive. And two, you're you're going to run out of stories that people are, are interested in. Three, you're going to run into fatigue that could affect the feature side, which is you don't want to do. So how do you bring in international content? How do you bring in new forms of content like anime to do things without without ruining the Disney brand? That's their big thing they have to figure out. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's talk about Amazon. Everybody talked about Lord of the Rings with Amazon and not much else. What what performed for Amazon this year? So the thing is, Rings of Power did perform for Amazon. The issue is it kept getting compared to House of the Dragon. In that way, it did about half of the demand um, for of, of House of the Dragon. So it didn't compete there. But it did well in establishing... A well, but House of the Dragon is Game of Thrones. So on the demand metric, the search and chatter is going to be off the charts, right? Right. Lord of the Rings is a more kind of milquetoast property. It's PG-13, not R. It's global. Anything else move the needle for Amazon this year? No, I mean, think about it. What, was the, what Amazon show did you ever hear anyone else talking about? Thursday Night Football. Thursday Night Football uh, helped in, in the U.S., to an extent, mm -hmm. right? Viewership is still down compared to when it was on Fox and NFL Network, but it's a, it's a younger audience, which makes sense based on how people use Amazon. There is And little known fact, it became the number one 
show for old people calling their children to ask how to watch football on streaming. The the only other show on Amazon that is picking up speed in the last few weeks that I can see it's been rising through our, our charts um, is The Peripheral, which is hmm. a show that I've been told by many people to watch. But Who's in that? Couldn't tell you. And I think this is the issue with, <laughs> with Amazon. Like That's the Westworld guys. Oh, that Lisa Joy and uh, and Jonah Nolan. They paid a boatload of money to get the Westworld people to come over to Amazon. And I believe this is their first show. There's clearly an audience that we can see it picking up on the demand side. I would be, I would not Chloe be Chloe Moretz and Jack Rayner are in it. So. And, and I wouldn't be shocked if it ended up on Nielsen at, uh, at some point. Like it's, that wouldn't be surprising mm-hmm. to me. I think though the issues, I, I, I see encounter this every time I watch Thursday Night Football is I'll watch trailers for these shows that are coming to Amazon and I'm like, I've never heard of this. This is like a show I've never heard of. I'm not aware of it. And I think Amazon has a problem, one, with getting people to open Prime Video. And then if you're only, if the idea is like to get people in that ecosystem to then recommend things within there to kind of create noise about it, the whole issue is getting people to open that app. So I think Amazon, for me, if I look across the board, had the toughest year, not from a financial perspective, not from a business perspective, but in terms of, I had a, I had a conversation with uh, an executive at a, a, a streamer, and they said to me, they turned to me and they said, I don't know what Amazon is. I can tell you what every other one of my competitors are. I could not tell you what Amazon is. And I think that's yeah. the issue that they still have in 2022, that they had in 2019. I think they're figuring that out. But I would say they've made steps. I mean, some of the the early years of Amazon where they were like literally producing niche content to try to get Oscars and Emmys, like that that seems to be over. They're going more in the bigger budget tentpole style shows and movies that with Jack Ryan and they did the Tom Clancy show and they've done, they've tried to make bigger bets on bigger things. Um, and they're not really a player in this year's Oscar race. They don't really have a movie that they're promoting like they were last year with the Aaron Sorkin movie. Uh, so I think that they are trying to become more like the Amazon general audience, which is lower brow, which is more populist and which is massive. I mean, the boys is their, I would say is their biggest success. The boys. Yeah. The boys, but the boys is very broad. Yeah. Like the, it's a, you know, R rated superhero show. Speaking of money and power, let's go to Apple. Uh, I'm curious what the data shows uh, resonated this year on Apple. I didn't spend a ton of time on Apple other than, you know, I watched Ted Lasso like everyone. Other than that, like what resonated? Shows like Mythic Quest are back for its third season. There was Severance, of course. Um, Did anyone watch Severance in the real world outside (laughs) of the New York, L.A. media bubble? Is that a hit? I I don't have the viewership, so I can't speak if people watched it, but I can say that Severance definitely was in their top 10 of the most in-demand shows. So people really? were okay. watching it. All right. Here's what I think happens, though, with, with Apple. And I think and this would be my thing about them. They've got a lot of – Blackbird's a great example. Uh, Mosquito Coast Return, like that's a great show. They have all these different shows that people are kind of inherently interested in. And uh, Ted Lasso being the biggest one. Um, You've got Bad Sisters. There's a bunch of other shows that come out that people are interested in. The issue with Apple is that – 
the brand value perception of that platform is like there's no reason to sign up for Apple TV Plus. There's because you're watching maybe one show a quarter, depending on what that is. So Apple has, in my opinion, a massive piracy issue because it's the type of programming that you want to watch, but you don't want to pay for. It, so you download it to your Plex server or you watch it somewhere else, uh, and that's how you interact with Apple. And I think the amount of money that they spend on programming, and obviously they're going after quality first. They're taking it slow. They don't seem in any massive rush to figure out the revenue side of things uh, as they're as they're entering the space. You know, this is a company that started the year off with an Oscar, went into a bunch of Emmys. Like they have all these shows that appeal to different taste clusters, or it's a word everyone loves that do find audiences that do have demand, but there's no overlap between those shows. It's not like people who are watching C are necessarily also watching the morning show. And therefore they're like, well, I'll stick around because I'm going to watch all this and I'm interested in uh, whatever other new series is going to come out. That's the Apple problem. And they haven't really found a way to fix that. But I also think Apple TV Plus is a stepping stone to Apple's actual game. I don't think Apple TV Plus is designed to be this massive streaming service. No, no, no. It's still a niche thing. It's more of a hobby for them. All right, let's go to Paramount Plus because numbers-wise on subscribers, they've gained a lot. They're they're they are among the fastest growing services. Is this just the Taylor Sheridan show and then everything else? What's moving the needle on Paramount Plus? Movies. Movies, the Paramount movies. Paramount movies. It's it's the same thing that's helping Peacock out. The biggest thing they have going for them is that they have movies in theaters that people want to watch afterwards. And so you bring right. them to, you know, Smile or Black Sonic Booker the Hedgehog 2. I am embarrassed. If Paramount Plus did a version of Spotify Wrapped, the number one movie on my TV this year would probably be Sonic the Hedgehog 2. <laughs> Sad to say. Not for me, from my kid, but it, it would be embarrassing. I'll say Universal and Paramount, I think, has it the best way figured out. I would not be surprised if, you know, Iger goes back to this in a post-JPEG world where the... That, at Disney. At Disney. The 90, you know, 95% of movies make 98% of their revenue within 30 to 40 days. Why keep those movies in theaters? But then, if you if you're, if you you know those films aren't necessarily going to generate huge money within the Peabody window, within that rental and buying window that something like Top Gun Maverick would, why wait? And then, but you can just put on streaming and drive subscribers. And then, if you know there's huge overlap, people who like Sonic the Hedgehog 2 probably probably like Nickelodeon, probably like some other content on there. Yeah. You can really keep the, those subscribers retained. The lifetime value goes way up. So they that's the totally. strategy that works for them. Sonic is a Sonic is a gateway drug for children <laughs> yeah. to, to be exposed to SpongeBob, other Nickelodeon stuff. Yeah. Um, so and also the, I feel like Paramount, if we did the numbers, they'd probably be the oldest streaming service. Is that true? Because it's a lot of the CBS content and they have football and they have these Taylor Sheridan shows with, you know, Sylvester Stallone, Tulsa King, that audience has got to be geriatric. The audience is 100%. Does the data say that? Yes. All right. Last and, in my opinion, least, Peacock. Did Peacock have anything to celebrate this year? You're, you're, you're more bullish on Peacock than I am. See, here's the thing. I think Peacock does not have the subscriber count that Peacock wants. That I think the the it's 15 states, million. They told us. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. So they they don't have the the subscriber count that people want for it. But I do think they're because of the advertising side of things, their revenue is is decent. So I think from a business standpoint, Peacock is in a better position than maybe some other streaming services. Really, just because Comcast. Comcast can just use it as an upsell for the other stuff and they're a cable company and they can 
benefit from it that way. Yeah, is and, what you're saying? And, and also I think what they did this year that was most impressive, which is what they needed to do, was they kind of back up. When they were looking at doing stuff, you know, they when they were doing Dr. Death, which I know they're doing for a second season in Bel Air, and they're looking at all these types of shows, the issue is like they're trying to compete with companies that have way more money and way more of a of a uh, occluded in audience for those types of shows, those prestigious premier ty- uh, um, premium type shows. It just doesn't make a lot of sense when that audience is really the Bravo audience. The audience wants to watch like Vanderpump Rules or whatever Real Housewives the next day. They want to watch football. They want to watch soccer. But those are different audiences. I mean, those are those are branded audiences, what you're saying. They, no one's going to go to Peacock. They're just going to go to whatever platform has the Housewives or whatever platform has WWE. Or they just did a deal for Hallmark movies. So now if you want to watch Hallmark movies on streaming, you know you can go to Peacock and watch them there. So they're kind of acknowledging that their brand sucks, but they're glomming on to other brands to build up their own. Right. I mean, but I mean, think about what, to an extent, the cable bundle was, right? Like you bought into it for certain brands. You wanted to get ESPN. You wanted to get Bravo. You wanted to get Hallmark, whatever it was. Like that's what you were paying for, having it all in one place. I think what Peacock and Paramount are best poised to do is catch that 70, you know, let's say, let's say 50 million household audience that cuts the cord over the next 25 years when they're trying to find a place that does the kind of content that they want that they're getting maybe on broadcast, that's, that's sports, it's news, that's set, but these types of movies that appeals to a, a, a typical family, right? Dad watches football, mom's watching Hallmark, whatever, it's gender stereotypical. But, you know, the, the kids are watching uh, Jurassic World or whatever they want to watch, uh, yeah. Minions. Do, do the Universal movies move the needle yeah. on Peacock? They do? We see the demand increase, yeah. And, and think about those movies, right? Like, theatrical, the biggest mistake that a lot of... I think these executives make is that the idea that a movie that goes straight to streaming is going to be more valuable than a movie that goes to theaters. All of the data suggests it's the total opposite. For the vast majority of movies, about 90% of films, going to theaters first and then going to a streaming service is only going to increase demand for that film. And you're also going to generate stronger revenue on it. Uh, well, tell that to Netflix with Glass Onion, but that's a whole separate topic. Last question. Who won the year in streaming? One single person, one single show, one single platform. Across the board, it is Netflix. Who was the who is who had the who's had the, who had the biggest show last year? It was Netflix. Who had the biggest show the year before that it was Netflix. Like Netflix, consistently over the last few years, has had the biggest show based on totally original IP. One that wasn't even English in the English speaking, which is a massive massive win for them. Squid Game. The idea that Netflix lost a million subscribers, I know, really jarred the entire industry. But considering that Netflix operates in every single country and has hit saturation in a few, like is close to hitting saturation a few. It's not great that they're losing subscribers, but it was not to me as jarring as like them not growing. You know, like like the idea that they're going to continuously grow by two, three million, four million subscribers every single quarter, that just doesn't happen. If you just do the simple modeling on it, it's just not going to be what plays out. So I think if we look at their content, when we look at the shows, when we look at you know all, all those top titles from Squid Game, F Squid Game, from Stranger Things to Bridgerton to Wednesday. They're in a really great position. Well, tell it to the stock market. The stock market needs to hear that. What they <laughs> what they need to do, then the only way that Netflix kind of reduces churn and increases subscribers in, uh, incrementally over the next few years is they have to, have to, have to get rid of this idea that seasonality matters. 
that they need to put certain things in Q4 and that they can't get that things in Q2. Seasonality is dead. It's been dead for a while. They need to take their shows and evenly distribute it from all different taste clusters and all different audience demographics across the board to reduce their churn even more. Meaning spread it out. Don't just bundle stuff. Are they doing that? Are they putting stuff in like certain quarters of the year? For the longest time, all their biggest shows were Q4. It was why they... they, And their biggest gains were Q4. And it's why they always did price hikes in Q4. Because or before, because yeah. they knew people were going to pay for it. So yeah, Netflix will continue to be, in my opinion, the dominant force. Maybe controversial opinion, but they just need to be better planning about how they maintain that that consistency. All right. Well, address all of your angry tweets about Love Is Blind <laughs> to at Julia Loudmouth Julia on Twitter. Um, all right. Thanks very much, Julia, for coming on. Thanks, Matt. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Craig, we finally saw Emancipation, the Will Smith movie, the other night. We did. Uh, we went to the we went to the premiere. Um, it's good. I liked it. Now, the one thing that was surprising to me, and we'll get to my prediction in a second, it was just like a normal premiere. Mm-hmm. Will Smith cruising the red carpet, you know, at the after party, hanging with his many fans. It was as if the slap never happened, and I think that is a little surprising for those of us in the media, perhaps that seven or eight months ago said that it would be impossible to put this guy on a red carpet for a long time. Uh, But there he was. Nobody, shocker, nobody on the red carpet seemed to ask about this news event that was a major deal not that long ago. Yeah, he spoke before the movie aired. He was very Mm -hmm. silly. He joked around. He was charismatic. And I got to say, having been there, seeing Will Smith, hearing him speak, seeing the movie, I don't think the controversy is going to affect the buzz around this movie. It will obviously probably help that. And I don't think it's going to hurt the opinion of this movie. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal has a piece today that says, is Will Smith's apology tour working? And they quote a bunch of crisis PR executives, which is always funny to see. And, you know, he's he's been out there on social media. He did a tour of colleges, primarily historically black colleges, to show the movie. And he's now, you know, he did some press interviews for the movie. The reviews aren't great. I should say my wife is a talent manager and has a client in the movie. But uh, I think the the reviews are to be expected. I don't think critics um, are going to give Will Smith the benefit of the doubt, as they might have done in the past. Uh, But I, I agree with you. I don't think the controversy is going to hurt this movie. It might even might even help the kind of looky loo people who maybe know about it because of the controversy. It's only in theaters for one week starting today, actually. And then it's uh, on Apple TV plus. And I think a lot of people are going to check it out there. Yeah. I thought it was very good. Yeah. All right. Moving over to my prediction. So Top Gun Maverick is coming back to theaters for two weeks that Paramount cannot squeeze enough money out of this thing. They've got to go back to theaters. um, Even though the movie has uh, done $716 million domestic. That's just in this country, about $1.5 billion worldwide. 1,800 theaters for two weeks, a lot of them IMAX and premium. Then it's going to drop on Paramount Plus on December 22nd. I, I think it's done. I think my prediction is I don't think this is going to really resonate this weekend, uh, certainly less than $10 million. And this is this money grab is just, kind of probably to appease Tom Cruise. And they probably looked at the calendar. If they're Paramount said, oh, there's really not that much out there these two weeks, especially before Avatar hits theaters. So why don't we just uh, throw it out there and see what happens? You know, 1,800 screens is not insignificant. It's triple glass onion. 
It's triple glass onion, exactly. <laughs> About half of a big wide release these days. So it'll be out there. It'll be curious if people kind of perusing the malls, going shopping, or like, oh, Top Gun's still in theaters. Let's do it. I'm taking the over. I, there's going to be you a are. lot of kids coming home to their parents and grandparents' house that are going to go see this movie. Perhaps. Yeah, that could be the case. You know, maybe they watched it pirated in their dorm and they're like, oh, let's go see it. Yeah. Let's go see it together. Uh, we'll see what happens. All right. That's the show for today. Want to thank Julie Alexander for coming on. Want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. 